Welcome to Future of School, the podcast, where we amplify all the key stakeholder voices in education. Students, teachers, parents, policy influencers, entrepreneurs, and more. And engage in meaningful discussions about what it means to create an education system in which all students can reach their unbounded potential. You'll hear diverse perspectives discussing the power and promise of technology, true successes in personalized learning, and what it means to prepare the qualified workforce of tomorrow. Enjoy today's episode. Technology plays a central role in regards to increasing access and equity for K-12 students across our country. Universal access to education, it's important to understand what that is, and it's the ability of all people to have equal opportunity to a quality education regardless of where they live, their gender, their ethnic background, or any physical or mental disabilities that they might have. Those are big buckets to fill in the traditional sense of online, of traditional sense of education. So technology levels the playing field. Innovation and disruption, that's the way that we will be able to advance and increase opportunity for students to enroll in blended classes, to take online courses, to benefit from hybrid classes. So technology, it's, it's not that it's the answer, instead it's the great equalizer that levels the playing field for all kids. Technology doesn't judge previous academic performance, technology doesn't have preconceived notions, and it's not political. It's there as a tool and a resource. A couple of examples that we've seen this is in rural America, where options can be limited. Options for AP and honors classes are, are stifled because of having qualified teachers being able to teach those classes. Online classes provide opportunities to kids. For blended, blended programs provide increased course choice for advanced learners. That's another example. Adaptive tests for students that learn differently, where the curriculum and content adjust based upon their needs. The list can go on and on. Each school and community is going to be able to benefit from technology in different ways, but before we can move forward with that, we need to be in a mindset of feeling comfortable that that is how we're going to move our schools forward. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Stick around for our featured interview and more great segments coming up. Our podcast guest today is Stuart Udell. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Amy. How are you? Excellent. It's so great to have you here. Stuart is the CEO at Achieve 3000, where he took over in April of 2018. Prior to leading the helm at Achieve 3000, Stuart has worked in many leadership roles for different companies and corporations throughout his career. So what we're really interested in hearing from you, your perspectives and opinion today, Stuart, is the role that technology plays in making school more relevant for kids across America. Sounds like a great topic. I can't wait to talk about it. You know, as a former teacher, Stuart, both in, per in person and online, it has always and continues to pain me when I hear kids say, I don't like school, school's boring, or worse yet, I hate school. It's such a strong way to refer to their experience where they spend so much time. What are some of the factors that you think play a role in, in this sentiment when kids express this? 
Sure. You know, in one of my former roles as uh, chairman of the National Dropout Prevention Center, we looked at the role of boredom and the impact on, on dropouts. Uh, nationwide of the, you know, more than 1 million dropouts a year, uh, about 46% of kids said they dropped out of school because, because they were bored. Now, that means a number of things. It, it, it obviously uh, has something to do with engagement. Uh, we think in our research, it all obviously also has something to do with relevance. So when we talk about engagement and we talk about relevance, we're talking about a number of things. First, we're talking about uh, are kids learning in their zone of proximal de development, kind of that zone that's not too hard to cause frustration, but, but uh, hard enough that it's creating challenge. So that's one way that we think about relevance. We also think about relevance in that is the curriculum, is the instruction connected to the real world? So, uh, you know, one way to think about that is uh, for high school kids, career and technical education. That's a lot more interesting uh, for a lot of kids to learn about than, let's say, Shakespeare, although that may be important too. Um, and now we're talking a lot about engagement and relevance as cultural sensitivity and responsiveness as well. So if I'm reading certain materials, for instance, am I reading about people and cultures and communities that I can connect with and make sense to me. So we're, we're really talking about interest level there in addition to academic level. And of course, there's a whole host of things that technology can do to uh, you know, really connect to a more relevant and engaging education. Uh, and when I, I think about that technology, uh, one of the real reasons it's important to embed technology in all education we do is because it's embedded in our life. So if we go back um, a few years ago, what was commonly heard in schools is turn off your phone when you get into class, when that is central to every other moment we have in life when we're outside of the classroom. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just reading a report yesterday that said that 92% of students text during class, 96% of kids that have them, and, and, and especially in the high school level, right? So why do you think our K-12 education system has been so slow to adopt technology as, as a useful tool for instruction and learning? Well, look, it's been an evolution if we think back to the work that uh, Clayton Christensen did in Disrupting Class back, oh, 12 to 15 years ago. He did predict that one of the last institutions in America to really ad ad adopt technological change would be United States schools because there are layers that are involved. There are interest groups, there's community groups, you know, parents and such, there's government involvement, there's, you know, organized labor involvement. There are a lot of reasons why it may be a little bit harder to get technology adopted in schools than in other uh, institutions or, or uh, industry verticals. But that said, you know, it's, uh, it's been an evolution. I think back to the late, mid, late 1990s, when I was running another uh, uh, educational technology organization, you know, we started with CD-ROMs, and then five years later, we started, you know, looking at networking uh, uh, machines so that uh, data can be shared at least at the classroom level. And then, of course, we migrated to an internet and cloud-based world over a over a longer period of time. But you know, when I talk to teachers uh, about the role of technology in education. Uh, there's one simple analogy I always use, and that's always the analogy of driving over a bridge. If we did not have guardrails 
on the lanes, uh, on the outer lanes in a bridge, most of us as rational human beings would drive 20 miles an hour right down the middle of the bridge. But with just a little two or three foot guardrail in the right lane, we feel comfortable doing 65 miles an hour in the right lane, some of us even more. And that's really what technology can do for teachers. It's really about liberation and the ability to go be a great teacher by deploying the tools that allow you to connect to the right content, get the right instruction in the right kids' hands at that very moment in time, and creating that relevance and that, that engagement that you asked about just a moment ago. Yeah, really great points. It, it also brings up uh, two studies that were done, one in 2018, clearly before the pandemic, and the other one in June of this year, post-pandemic, asking teachers about their interest in using technology. Because what, what we know to be true is that the, the influence of the teacher on a student's life is the most important factor in their personal and academic success in school. So we know that, but we've been up against these misnomers like, oh, if we use computers in the classroom or if we use technology, you know, we don't want that to replace the teacher when we know that's not the case. It's there to augment and add to and really make their job easier. So this study that I, that I was reading, which it had the same exact results. It, it said 10% of teachers felt comfortable with their ability to use technology in the classroom, but yet nearly 80% of them wanted to. And so the missing piece was professional development, that if they had the opportunity to be trained in it, or empowered to use it, then they were all in for it, but they didn't have the skills to use it. So it's like a, the chicken and the egg. So um, how do you think that the pandemic has, has shifted or changed the concept of school in our country? Well, look, we are not talking about politics today, but there is a saying in politics that uh, no good crisis should go to waste. And when I think about the role of the pandemic in moving us forward, it's really about an opportunity to reimagine education, to reinvent education. You and I, both in prior lives, you know, worked in uh, with virtual schools. So we have, you know, seen the flip side of a model. And a lot of public school systems, uh, you know, really had a had a challenge moving to what uh, we know is virtual schooling, but I know you you talked to us about crisis education. It really was what happens in that short-term crisis. Now, as we think about going you know, back to school for this new school year, we really have an opportunity nationally to be much more purposeful about how we go about it. Um, at Achieve 3000, which is the organization I run now, uh, we did a very large study back in May that got a lot of uh, media pickup uh, because of its interesting findings. And we looked in the study at what happened to reading practice time, both pre and post crisis, because our platform allows us to collect all of this interesting information, both in terms of quantity of reading practice and the outcome on, 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 on uh, and the impact on educational outcomes. Since all of our data is measured by a third party assessment provider, it's very valid. So we looked at a study of 1.6 million students around the country, and what we found is that in that pivot to remote learning nationally, we saw about a 45% decline in almost every usage metric, whether that's number of minutes per week, number of logins, number of activities, number of assessment items taken. What we also saw, which was very dismaying, is an immediate decline in the, um, in the trajectory of learning outcomes. Um, 
so, so uh, you know, that I, I suppose is not surprising when you have less time on what I call appropriate tasks. But the most um, challenging finding was that we saw the gap, what we call the achievement gap. I like to think about it as an opportunity gap, which is more forward looking than backward looking. But the achievement gap between high and low performing students, or, or in fact, between rich and poor students actually widened by about 6% over a few month period. So those are the real issues we're facing if with uh, we're faced with today and that we have to grapple with but here's the great news in the study that we found we we found about 13 percent of school districts who we looked at actually increased their usage and increased their performance after COVID hit which we determined as i think march 11th in the study and what when when we went out to interview those districts like Duval County, Florida, one of the largest in the nation, like Marlboro, New Jersey, and several others, what we found was that they all said the same thing: uh, achieve three thousand specifically, but technology generally is embedded in the fabric of our school district. It's what we do. It's the way we teach kids. It's the way we help teachers. It's the way we look at data. It's the way we communicate with parents. So those 13% of districts did not have a hard time making the pivot to remote learning. So those are, those are the challenges uh, I think we face now, but, the, but they are real opportunities. And when we go back to whatever the real world actually becomes, I think we're all better for it because of that reimagination and reinvention opportunity that's on our doorstep. Yeah, you bring up great points. The one I want to highlight is that those, and clarify, the 13% of schools you're saying that saw the increase in gains, they were using technology before the pandemic hit, correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. So they just, they just changed the modality of their classroom, but not their instructional techniques. Yeah. So they were teed up. So we, yeah, I feel like our emerging schools, schools that are looking to do things differently uh, using technology, they have a lot to learn and can learn a lot from schools that have been walking down that path that have been going down that road, whether it's, you know, six months prior to or six years prior to schools have been innovating schools have been reimagining in order to shift with the times. And um, we're at a place where there is a great opportunity for all schools to have to reimagine what that looks like, what their models of instruction look like, what tools they use, how they best use teachers. And we know that there's been some very severe budget cuts that have been made this year with potentially more the following year. And so it, it really is pushing school leaders and districts to use their resources um, wisely. And I think one of the challenges that comes along with that is there are so many ed tech tools out there. I mean, four years ago, there was over 5,000 ed tech tools at market. And so what, what I'm hearing from leaders is we need to figure out how to best select the tools and resources that will meet our kids' needs because it's very competitive. So as a kind of a wrap-up question, do you have any um, advice or sage wisdom for leaders as they're out there researching and, and really putting their ear to the ground to, to tech tools? Sure. Well, look, um, you know, you have to be very purposeful about what your goals are and what tools fit those goals. I think you start there. And uh, I would look, you know, very carefully at the research. So uh, you want to look both at the pedagogical basis, research basis that underpins any products that you might be selecting or, or thinking about working with. And then secondly, you want to look carefully at the efficacy data. And, you know, what I would specifically suggest is that folks look at either randomized experimental design studies, and there aren't that many of them out there, but some folks like the organization I run do have them. 
uh, and, and look at quasi-experimental design studies because all of us, every organization in the space can, you know, put a few great case studies on the page. Um, but, uh, but what I will say is this, I do think the ed tech industry, generally speaking, is very responsible. There are a lot of well-designed products out there. A lot of the proof is usually in the implementation. So you mentioned professional development a little bit earlier. I think that what I sometimes see school systems try to skimp on is buy the product and don't really support the implementation and, and the professional development and, and ongoing training of teachers. And very often the refrain is, oh, we do that internally in our district. But, you know, these are, um, you know, very specific, uh, intentionally designed tools that have you know, uh, been, been very well thought out and getting that right in implementation is really, really important. Uh, because when I think about the dollars in aggregate that are spent on curriculum instruction and technology in school systems around the country, I mean, it's staggering. It's hundreds of, of billions of dollars. And uh, we need to get that right because those dollars don't belong to uh, the community member, the ed tech players, they belong to the kids. So, you know, we, I, I and we have a very strong philosophy. If we're gonna do anything in a school, we better make darn sure it works uh, because if they can spend their money somewhere else and get a better, better outcome, they should. Uh, that's a long answer to your simple question, but I would start with the research and focus on the implementation and professional development. Fantastic. Stuart, thank you for sharing your time and insights with us today. We're glad to have you as part of our podcast series, and we wish you a great year. Thank you, Amy. It was great to be here, and congratulations for, uh, for all the terrific work that you're doing at Future School. Thank you. Nearly one half of rural school districts have no students enrolled in AP classes. This is one example of the great divide that exists in the American education system. But technology is a powerful bridge, increasing access and equity for all students, regardless of the myriad of obstacles that stand in their way. With online courses, students can access the courses they need and want wherever they are. Uh, my name is Glenn Stahl. I'm currently a freshman at Auburn University working on a materials engineering degree. Um, I uh, have a lot of experience with online classes. I took a bunch of them in high school, uh, mostly to free up my schedule for crew because it was such a big time sink to try to um, drive to an actual river after school every day. Um, so in my experience with online classes, uh, it really does come down to budgeting your time a lot of people say that, and that's kind of because it's true. Um, it's super easy to get distracted, and you really have to stay on top of your due dates. Um, usually in in-person classes, things are due uh, at, at a class period. With online classes, they're due um, on different days of the week. Um, and because of that, I really prefer it when um, teachers or professors have a fixed due date. Uh, for example, uh, let's say a week's worth of work will open on a Monday and it's due next Sunday and you can budget your time and you can work on things uh, sort of more effectively rather than having to go to your, your calendar and go, okay, so I have this math assignment Tuesday, this chem assignment Wednesday and sort of have to figure out um, where things line up in your schedule. Um, overall though, I really enjoy the flexibility of online classes. I find um, it frees up time for extracurriculars, really, and sort of um, also just, you know, uh, 
you don't have to wake up early if you don't want to, um, or you can um, you know, go out with friends or something. You're listening to Future of School, the podcast. Next up, today's five and five teacher interview. Today we have two very special guests. Both are educators and they're married to each other. So they literally live, eat, and breathe education. Welcome Tracy, special education teacher of 10 plus years who's taught high school and higher ed, who's finishing his dissertation. And his wife, Marin, sixth through eighth grade middle school special education teacher. Welcome both of you. Hi, Amy, thanks. Hi. So exciting to have both of you here to be able to tap into your individual and collective perspective. So let's get started. Tracy, talk to us about the first experience that opened your eyes to the potential of blended and online learning. I think the, Amy, the first one for me was truly at the university level when um, I was teaching, I was adjunct teaching gen education preparation teachers um, strictly online. So there was, it was all virtual. Um, and I think that's how I got started into virtual. Um, and then the year after I went full time at the university and I was doing hybrid, I was doing some virtual, uh, some face to face. Um, and that's been probably four or five years, um, became certified to teach uh, strictly online and hybrid uh, through Quality Matters. And now look where we're at. Now we're teaching everybody virtual. Erin, how about you? So my answer is completely different. So I would have to say March 13th of 2020, <laughs> which was my last full day in the classroom. And the next week they're like, uh, so by the way, you're gonna be teaching virtually. Okay. <laughs> um, so since that time, I've been teaching completely online, which is really new to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. So Marin, from your perspective, your short amount of time doing online instruction, remote learning, what is one thing that you think people either inside or outside of education that they misunderstand when it comes to learning online? That it's easy. <laughs> so I know that a lot of my parents and other parents just think that it's automatically like it's a whole lot easier to teach online because you're not in the classroom. But what they don't understand is like the whole behind the scenes. So there's probably five different platforms that I've had to learn in a short amount of time to try and reach my students to the best of my ability and their ability. Um, luckily, my parents have been extremely understanding <laughs> and helped with everything. Um, within teaching, though, I'm not sure that there's been a whole lot of misconceptions just because we're all struggling, we're all trying to learn, um, and we're all just trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, but like I said, I think just the biggest misconception is that it, it should be easy and it should be, you know, seamless and it's not. Very true. Tracy, what about from your perspective? What is one of the biggest misunderstandings when it comes to the discussion of online learning? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, which is going to be totally just for fun, is that we're sitting home in our pajamas eating bonbons while we're teaching class. I mean, that I think you can't get much simpler and have fun than that answer. Um, but I think Marin's answer of just 
misunderstanding of how easy people think it might be. Um, the research is going to show, and I know, especially in our house, that we have we are making ourselves available more hours of the day for students and families and even our administrators because there's a combination of synchronous and asynchronous that we're all over the board. And so, you know, is it easier? It's different. Is it less time? No, it's more time. And it's 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 a more of a it's a juggle. It's a bigger juggle than it is face to face. So I think that's the biggest misunderstanding. Very good. Tracy, what's one strategy that you think every educator should use in their instruction? And Amy, just for clarification, are we talking virtual, face-to-face, -face, just any old strategy for any old thing anywhere? Is that where we're at? Yeah, I think that's a great clarifying question because it, do, it does matter, right? It matters. So yeah. in we'll say in your school, in the environment that you work in. My mindset took me to, to patience, but that's not necessarily a strategy. I think it is. I think the soft skills can be strategies. Okay, well, that's it. well so we'll go with patience, obviously, which I don't have a lot of. Um, I, I think that's why I joke and, and party so much because it's stressful what we do, right? Um, but also to build a relationship. And in virtual, it's even more important, I believe, because we've we're building, we're building that relationship, not just with a student, regardless of what that student's level or grade level is, but they've invited us into their home. So now we're building that relationship with the family, the dog. I mean, we've had rabbits, we've had hamsters. So, you know, that build that relationship so that the families feel comfortable enough to let us into their home and their daily lives, I think is my, what's most important at this point. I'll put a little twist on that for you, Maren. What one strategy do you think that every teacher should use who's new to teaching online? <laughs> it's actually kind of funny because I keep joking if I were a brand new teacher. So this is my 15th year teaching, but if I were brand new, I probably would have quit by now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so time management, just because there's so much going on. I mean, because we are a household of two educators, plus we have a have a fifth grader and a third grader at home that we're also trying to teach and manage. Um, not to mention, I mean, he's going to school and I'm going to school. So it's a whole lot going on at one time. So just managing your time, I haven't mastered that yet. I mean, I was up until midnight last night trying to figure out how to upload my lessons and read for an assignment. Um, so just managing your time, but also making sure that you're finding time for yourself. Um, just to take that time to relax or decompress or whatever it may be that is your thing. Um, a lot of the SPED teachers on my campus, we have an ongoing text with each other. And, you know, we do the whole joking thing just to try and make light of things just because it is such a struggle. Um, so just trying to find out, you know, how things best work for you and for us, I mean, that changes daily because we switch off and on on who's on campus and who's not on campus. So just finding that niche of where you can manage your time. Yeah, where you're most productive without stressing yourself out, I think. Yeah. I appreciate your honest answers and saying that, you know, if I were a first year teacher, I don't know, I might not have come back. So I appreciate your, your honesty. 
Marin, when you consider or think about what the future of schools should look like for students, what comes to mind? So that's kind of a hard one for me just because I think that kids learn better, especially the type of kids that we teach when you're face to face with them. Um, so having to look in the computer right now and seeing a parent with their child trying to do what I would normally do with them is a struggle for me because I know that they don't have the education and the experience that I have in reaching that kid, even though they're that kid's parent, it's different. A teacher and a parent are two different things. And so I'd like to see where we're all back in the classroom. The reality of that though, I think is very slim. So I know at least in Tatchby Unified, we were looking at doing a blended model before our, before our county got put back on the watch list. So I think being able to have at least some in-person time with our kids, even if it's in small groups, even if I can only have two kids at a time come in and we're all distance and masks and whatever it is so that we can have that personal time with each other. Um, some type of blended model I think would be best moving forward. Um, and even for general, general education kids, I mean, I have friends that are like, we don't know what's happening. I'm like, you have to make sure you stay in contact with your teachers. And if you have questions, you need to push your kids. Like I think parents are having to stay on top of their kids more so than they were before because they're having to rely on their child doing their work independently as we're in the classroom, you have more of a direct access instruction. So for me, I, I would say a blended model if that were possible. Tracy? Can you repeat the question? Because I was just yeah. listening to her awesome answer and forgot it about was it. A it really was a great answer. You hit that nail on the head with the blended learning. Best of both worlds. When you consider what the future of school should look like for students, what did that look like to you? I, I'm going to agree with the blended model. I'm just not sure that having the student do both or students in, in our nation doing both on a weekly, daily, monthly basis, whatever it is, is the best idea. Um, you know, I think, Amy, you and I have talked enough that I would like to revamp education anyway. But I think I've always been a proponent of charter schools only because they do things different. Well, guess what? It's 2020. We're doing things different in education. So I, I appreciate where we're at. I understand people struggle, but don't come at me with, I'm a lifelong learner and, oh, I don't know how to teach virtual. Well, you've just blown that lifelong learner trust out the window. So don't mess with me, right? If you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be a lifelong learner, be open to everything. Should charter schools be face-to-face -face and virtual? Great. Love it. Should public schools be face-to-face -face and virtual? Love it. Let your parents kind of tell you or your, you know, for your local control federal funding, right? Let them tell us what works for that community. If half the kids want virtual, great. If half the kids want face-to-face, -face, great. We've got the staff. Let's make it work. If you want a hybrid model in your community, figure out what works and make it work because the parents are being called upon to do a lot of crazy stuff that they didn't sign on for. But once again, that's parenting, right? You don't know what you're getting. It's crazy. Appreciate it, value it, and move forward. So no, let's make education synchronous. Let's make it asynchronous. Let's make it virtual. Let's make it face-to-face. -face. Let's make it hybrid. Let's make it count to what we want the next generation to, to guide our country into. 
right? Let's don't be stuck in a building. Let's don't be stuck in a brick place. Let's don't be stuck by virtual. Let's make it what those kids need, that community decides they want to make it worthwhile and meaningful from here forward. Beautiful, great. Which transitions nicely into our last question and we'll start with you, Tracy. What is the one big dream that you have about education that you would love to turn into a reality? So as you read that question, my lovely wife is snickering because I think she knows what my answer is. Um, I've always wanted to start a charter school. And I said, I don't know if I'm understanding the question big enough. But for me, I've always wanted to start it since I got into education. I've wanted to start a charter school because in our the local community we used to live in and teach in, we did a, a tremendous disservice to a lot of my, our minority groups. And because that's the neighborhoods or the neighborhood I grew up in was minority group, um, I really want to build that family community school in a minority neighborhood. Um, most of my experience has been African-American or in that black neighborhood. And that's really a, a part of education for me as a general rule that doesn't get the attention that they deserve. I mean, we all want to have our kids learn something. We, nobody, very few people send their kids to school to be troublemakers or not, or to fail or to not do those, to get better, to better themselves, right? There are some, but most of them don't do that. I want to build a community school in the community where parents volunteer to keep the grass. We have actual people cooking actual food in an actual kitchen to serve those communities, to serve those kids, to see, I mean, if we're talking farm to table, then let's do farm to table. Let's just don't say it, right? Let's do those small, simple neighborhood schools that develop stronger communities. That's what I would want. Excellent. Maren? How, how am I supposed to follow up with that? <laughs> That's why I did it. <laughs> so one of the things that I always think about is me growing up. So I actually grew up in Tashby and then moved away for a while. But I remember growing up and always having everything accessible and having my teachers think outside the box. They weren't confined to teaching out of the textbooks. They came up with projects, ideas, things to get us out of the classroom to learn all of those standards that we needed to learn. But to me, I learned it. I learned those standards better because they were hands-on. So if I could pick one thing, it would be funding so that we could teach kids things outside the box. So if I want to teach them science and I want to teach them about the solar system, being able to take them out and have a camp out and do an astronomy lesson or being able to do more art projects. I mean, our schools no longer offer enough art or music and all of those things studies show help kids and their brains expand and learn more by giving them those extracurricular activities. I mean, I grew up in choir and band and doing all of those extra things, but those things are no longer accessible to my own children. And that's sad to me because I think we're so focused on, okay, you have to learn what's written in the book. In the long run, that's not helping them because how many kids are going to remember what they read in that textbook unless they can apply it to what's out there, they're not going to understand it as they get older. 
So I just feel like being able to have the funding to give them those extracurricular activities and make that the norm instead of making that the, what do you call it? The whatever the not norm is, like the exception. So oh, instead okay. of making that the exception, make it the rule because I feel like as in our society now, and especially as much as we have to offer in this world, that we're doing them a huge disservice. And I just, that's sad to me. And so I try to do everything. I mean, we try to do everything to get our kids involved, but it's no longer something that's at the school. And so I just feel like we need to be able to make that the rule and not the exception. Now, Amy, to be fair, Marin grew up where she could actually ride her horse to school. <laughs> now, me, I grew up in San Diego where I don't remember seeing a tree until I joined the Marine Corps. So, you know, you see the difference we come at this with. And I think that I think the differences are give you your unique perspectives. I think that that's what makes this conversation so amazing. Right. They are extremely valid. Right. We all look at things differently. And so we are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But we make education work and fun and enjoyable. Excellent. Thank you both for sharing your perspectives and for being here with us for our duo podcast. Of course. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to Future of School, the podcast. To learn more about Future of School, including our student scholarship program, innovative educator prize, and other efforts to highlight and accelerate purposeful innovation in schools, visit our website, futureof.school, follow us on Twitter at futureof underscore school, or connect with us on Facebook or LinkedIn.